0: Hey guys, thanks for tuning in today for episode 9 of Sheer Crime. I'm Amy. And I'm Kenzie. And we are covering the Netflix documentary Murder to Mercy, the Cintoya Brown story. Now this is a little bit of a spin on your typical true crime story, but we know you're going to like it, so let's get started. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Did you have a good Thanksgiving weekend?
1: I did. I love the long weekend. Oh, so my gosh. My my work always gives us the Friday after Thanksgiving off. Oh, so we get the lucky. entire weekend off. And it's so relaxing. It's so nice not to have to do anything. Oh,
0: seriously, I don't know why every company doesn't like in all honesty, I feel like the Friday after, Black Friday, yeah, should be a day off for everybody who gets Thanksgiving off. Yes. It's too difficult to like have to come back to work for one day. Yes. Oh, well, I
1: remember I used to work in retail. Yeah. And it was awful. Working Black Friday it was terrible.
0: Yes. yes. Literally the worst day of the year. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely do not envy anybody no. who has to. Um, however, I, uh, you know, always look forward to those Black Friday deals. Yes. Yeah. Favorite shopping <laughs> day of the year. It is. But I love doing it
1: online mm-hmm. at home. Well, and this year too, it was, only online because
0: of the situation we're in. So, right, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. This would be the one year that getting there, like, when the doors open, wouldn't be that bad because you know there's not that many other people standing there. Right. Right? <laughs> so, like, the door busters.
1: Yes. You could just show up at the normal time <laughs> and they're already there. So, Amy, what did you pick out this week for us
0: to drink? Well, I went with, you know, my huge yes. crook and marker. Because yes. they're just so... <laughs> damn tasty. And this week, we're actually going to try the blackberry lime flavor. I've had a sip of this one time. So I do not remember what it was like. I
1: love blackberry stuff. And um, I, I've been oh. seeing a lot more lately, just in general for drinks like blackberry drinks. General yeah, flavor. yeah.
0: I've been seeing them a lot more. So blackberries are health, you guys. Exciting. I'm just saying it's one of the best berries for you to consume. So Let's start consuming. What do you say? Yeah,
1: let's do it. All right. Pop those tops.
0: Mmm. Mm. That's good. That is good. I am a sucker for anything lemon and lime. Yes. And this is like that perfect amount of lime to berry f- ratio. I agree. It's very Yum. good. Very refreshing. Very much so. Yes. All right. All right. Let's
1: do it. Let's get this party started. So, this week we are doing the Netflix documentary Murder to Mercy, this Centoya Brown story. And this story starts on September 1st, 2004. Centoya is 16 years old. She is in the juvenile detention center and she's been incarcerated for three weeks. This is in Nashville, Tennessee. She is charged with homicide, robbery, possession of a weapon, and criminal impersonation. Damn. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. The most serious of those offenses, obviously, being the criminal homicide, which had occurred on August 6th of 2004 when Centoya shot and killed Johnny Michael Allen. Okay. We'll get into that a little bit more, obviously, as we get into the episode.
0: Yeah. But that's
1: why she's in juvie at the moment and why she's awaiting trial. Cyntoia tells us that she was always trying to please everyone else because she just wanted to be loved because she never thought that anyone loved her. And you can tell when she's speaking to the camera how naive and young she is. Oh, yeah. She has no clue about life and how it works. And I don't even really think she's grasping the
0: severity
1: of this I yet.
0: agree with you Totally. It's, she, so it's very sad. much like, it's very evident that she's only 16 years old. Yes. I mean, as she's talking, I'm like, that is 100% the attitude I had at 16. Mm-hmm. Invincible. Nobody can fucking touch me. Yeah. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know why y'all can't see that kind of an attitude. To a T. That yeah. was me. Yeah. And, We
1: find out that the state was trying to transfer her to the adult prison system to treat her like any other adult charged with homicide. And that's crazy to me. She is 16 years old. And I'm telling you, she looks 12. Uh, Yeah. She she doesn't look 16. She looks so young. I mean, her mouth is different. When she starts speaking, Yes, the mouth on her is a little bit different. Yes, yes. But the way she looks, she looks very, very young. Mm -hmm. We see on-screen text. It states, In the United States, all 50 states have laws that allow juveniles to be transferred to the adult system for serious offenses. Of all states, Tennessee has the harshest mandatory minimum life sentence for juveniles once transferred. They must serve 60 years with the possibility of parole after 51 years. Damn. Wow. Yeah. Well, weren't we just talking about the electrocution that happened in Tennessee this year? Earlier this year? Oh my god! (laughs) I totally forgot that that was Tennessee. I forgot for a second too until I just read that. I saw that this was in Tennessee, and I'm like, holy shit, that makes sense. Yeah. They have really harsh laws there. Yeah.
0: Uh, Note to self, not moving to Tennessee. (laughs) No. And those of you that live there, please be good.
1: (gasps) Yes, please. Please. It also states that in Tennessee, juveniles can be transferred on any charge if they are 16 or older. They have had children as young as 12 get transferred to the adult system on homicide charges. That is terrifying. That is not right. No, that's not right. Something needs to change. A 12-year-old, they haven't even gone through puberty
0: yet. Their frontal lobe isn't even fully, you know, developed. No. There's no way that they could possibly be the same person as an adult as they are at a 12 year old and i'd be really interested to find out who that 12 year old is and what they did yeah
1: and to just figure out that whole situation and how they got to where they were you know i mean we don't
0: we don't find that out but right and obviously circumstances are as they are you know so maybe it was completely maybe we hear about that case and we're like holy shit yeah that person is a psycho right but who knows but 12. It's so young. My daughter's almost 12. So young. Yeah. First, we meet Katherine Evans Sinback. Now, she is Santoya Brown's attorney, and she is a metropolitan public defender in the state of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Now. She is the person who is basically going to kind of defend Syntoia Brown in her transfer hearing, Uh, whether they're going to go in front of a judge and this judge is going to decide whether this case is going to be tried in the juvenile courts or whether it's going to be ...moved on to the criminal courts in the adult system.
1: Yes, and I think she is specifically a juvenile defense attorney. Right. Not an adult
0: defense attorney. Yeah. So So she is only at this point, because at this point she is a juvenile. Yes. And they haven't decided that they're going to charge her as an adult. Yes. Yep. So she was appointed. Correct. Now, her job is to prove that Centoya's life is worth saving, that she shouldn't be thrown away for the rest of her life in prison for something that she did as a minor. Um, now, as a juvenile, if you are tried in juvenile court, there are special services and needs that are identified that are given to you mm-hmm. because you're a juvenile. Uh, for example, you know, any type of psychiatric testing and evaluations, that's all something that is offered to you because you're a child.
1: And I think they want to see where this stemmed from. Yeah, how did this start? What where are they mentally, right? right? What what does that look like?
0: Yeah. There are two doctors that we are introduced to who do this evaluation on her. The first one is Dr. William Burnett. Now, he's a forensic psychiatrist at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. And he is going to identify what triggers she may have, what problems that she, you know, may have uh in her psyche and whether they can be fixed or not, because that's going to be a big determination as to whether she needs to spend the rest of her life in prison or whether, you know, in a few years, maybe she could be rehabilitated and let let out into the world again.
1: Yeah, essentially, if she can be treated for what's mentally wrong with her, if they find that she is somewhat. Mentally incapacitated.
0: Right, right. And it's going to then kind of give the court, you know, an idea or an understanding through these evaluations. Mm-hmm. So during the, one of the evaluations, we can see that he's sitting in, you know, like an interrogation room with her in the prison. And he's asking her about her family. And the first thing that she brings up is her mom. Her mom is Ellenette Brown, and she's a teacher. She then brings up the fact that that's not her biological mother that's Mm -hmm. her adopted mother yeah her biological mother is gina or georgina mitchell she is 32 years old at this time of this evaluation and dr burnett actually brings it up to her he says well isn't that funny how how old was she when she had you and Santoya goes well she was 16 he goes well isn't that interesting that Mm -hmm. she was 16 when she had you and here you are 16 right now Mm -hmm. and again this is that throwback to her being young. Yeah. The look on her face is kind of like, so didn't even face her. Yeah. She was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Why okay, great. Math <laughs> lesson. Right. Don't care. Um but in my head I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is so weird. hmm She also goes on to say that she doesn't know her dad, her biological dad. So mm-hmm. he's never brought up. There is no mention of an adoptive father either. So to me, it sounds like it is Ellenette and Centoya on their own. Well, yeah, because I think we also heard
1: that Georgina hasn't seen, hasn't seen
0: Centoya in like 14 years. Right. So hasn't been in her life at all. Right. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it's an, op- an open adoption. No. Now, Dr. Burnett also asks her about, you know, mood swings. He goes, do you get any mood swings? And I wrote down, she's a teen Duh. That's all they do That's is have mood swings. All they are are mood <laughs> yeah. swings, yeah. And uh, she she goes on to say, well, yeah, I have them all the time. You know, I'm happy one minute, then I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm gloomy, then I get mad, and then I go back to happy. Yep. And he says, "Um, you know, was there a time that, that it lasted a little bit longer? And she said, yeah, there was a time that I cried for about a week and a half during one of these mood swings. And while she's talking to him, it also, again – brings back to the fact that she's so young she's like laying on the table basically Mm -hmm. like laying her head on the table and just kind of looking up and talking to him which to me was almost kind of endearing because i'm like she just she looks so comfortable with him and i don't know i I didn't get the impression that she felt that way with a lot of people
1: no and again i think her actions just show that she is so naive still Mm -hmm. and i really don't think she's grasping What's going to be happening to her or what right. type of trouble she's in because she is so comfortable yeah I think she just believes that she'll be able to get out of this yeah because of her age because of the story that she's gonna tell whatever it is I think in her 16 year old mind yeah it's gonna be fine so she she's not worried she's you know swaying moving you know kids just can't sit still
0: right it's shown yeah oh yeah her immaturity level is very evident
1: yeah absolutely
0: she goes on to say that it's kind of rare for her to be very happy she says that you know if she's having good conversation with somebody then she can be happy but for the most part it doesn't sound like happy is her default mood which again she's a teenager though i mean i can't say that at that time i was ever happy or looking back i was but at the time i wouldn't have said i was yeah you know i get it yeah yeah And also she says, you know, that there are times that she can get really angry. And she says, and I quote, when I'm locked up, end quote, is when she is like the most pissed off. Yeah. And it sounds like she just doesn't like being told what to do, how to think, how to act, you know, like every teenager on the planet. Yeah. None of this is news to me, to be honest.
1: Well, and her behavior, again, is just so much of a naive teenager that doesn't really know what's going on. I mean, its I'll say it over and over again, because when you watch her demeanor at that time when she's having this interview, I mean, she's mad about being locked up because that's happening right now. Right. But of of course, there were other times when she was mad too, you know, but this is the only thing that she can think of right at the time is that's when she gets angry is when she's locked up. because.
0: Do we even know if she's ever been locked up before or previously? Or I don't think so, but I think I assumed she also meant like grounded. Oh, I guess, I guess I didn't think about it that way. Just but kind that of, of like makes on lockdown. Yeah, but yeah. maybe the words just came out, you know, locked up. Yeah, um, that's kind of what I assumed, but I don't, I don't know. She didn't that specify. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. We next meet the forensic psychologist, James
1: Walker, who is doing an evaluation on Centoia, wanting her to create stories around the photos he shows her, ensuring she uses her imagination, making sure she knows there's no right or wrong answers. Right. And these two psychologists, both James Walker and William Burnett, are working together with Centoia, doing these different sort of interviews. Right. And evaluations. Yeah, they're like a team but they're interviewing
0: her separately. Yes, yeah.
1: correct. So the first picture that we see is of two girls, one is on the ground and one is standing over her. The one that's on the ground has something near her head that looks to be a liquid maybe. Yeah. Um
0: and these are black and white drawings. Black and white
1: drawings, yeah. very basic.
0: Yeah. And they almost look like the drawings out of like the old Dick and Jane books, yeah, but yes, in black and white.
1: Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um And Centoya says that she thinks the one girl killed the other and she feels bad about it. Yeah. And that's a very strange thing to assume right off the top. Now, because she has killed someone, maybe that's at the top of her mind. Right, or it's
0: her frame of reference. That's all she knows. Yeah. But I would have never said that if of, I was looking at it. Yeah, I don't know. as As a true crime fanatic... I guess not. I mean, I'm looking at it and I'm like, yeah, no, she totally killed her. But would I have thought that at 16? I don't know. I, I don't know what I would have thought. Right. Yeah. It was an odd picture.
1: It was a weird picture. Yeah. Yes. And the second picture we see is a man and a woman looking like they're getting close to each other, almost kissing. Yeah. And then there's a child standing by and watching. Centoya says that they got into an argument. He's forcing her to kiss him, but she doesn't really want to. So bizarre. It's very interesting because you really get to see the inside of her mind and what she actually views and how she views life. Yeah. Because, again, I would have thought that the mom and dad are just... Getting close to each other and yep. telling each other that they love each other and that, you know, their daughter is watching them or, yeah. you know, in that same conversation. But she took a totally different 180 view of oh, yeah. that image. Yeah, you yeah. hers know? was
0: very negative. And very like negative. you, I thought it seemed very innocent. I even was looking at the picture and I'm like, no, she's wrong because the woman has her arm around yeah. him. She looks like she wants it too. Yeah. You know, but again, This is what, you know, her frame of
1: reference. all she knows. Yeah. So we see the third picture, and this picture has three girls together. They look to be talking to each other. Two of them have, like, their backs to the picture, and the other one you can see her front. Yeah. And Centoya says, this slut is telling her to give her all the money, and this bitch is sitting back and enjoying it. They're doing it because she's black. And again very negative, super negative.
0: That's not at all what I would have thought when I was looking at that picture.
1: And I almost think this is something that may have happened to her Totally. So I think it's, she's coming off or playing off of her own life experiences when she's looking at these photos. Yes. Because again, I would have never thought that. I literally would have thought there's three girls hanging out at school in between classes or something. That's literally what it looked like to me. Yeah. I didn't see anything that, no negativity. Right. Yeah, nothing no, looked scary or, no, you know. No, f- no weird facial expressions. Uh-uh. They all looked calm, the ones that we could see. So yeah. very, very interesting and bizarre.
0: She's very distrusting yep. of people. Absolutely. I mean, it's evident in and her I answers. And I think she has
1: a right to be, for sure. The more we yeah. find out, she definitely has a right to be. for Yeah, for sure. Now, James Walker's findings were that she had been honest But it was striking because all of her stories were chaotic and not one had a resolution. All had violence and aggression and lots of negative emotion like we were just talking about. Yeah. And the anger and rejection and a lot of this is just her view of the world. It it truly is. Yeah. Because anyone else in that situation, unless you grew up like she did, probably would have a different view of that. A lot of those would be happy photos versus sad or angry photos. Dr. Burnett believes that some of these characteristics affected her behavior when she had killed Johnny. Her instability, her paranoia, it totally makes sense. Oh, yeah. She talks about how anxious she gets all the time, and she's a constantly anxious and worrying type of person. Yeah. Now, if she stays in the juvenile court, she'll be under their supervision until she's 19, and Dr. Burnett does believe that's long enough to get her under control, but she does need
0: therapy. Oh, yeah. I think it's pretty evident just to see how everything manifested the night that Johnny was killed. Yep. Like, there, there's some deep-rooted things that need some work.
1: Absolutely. And what happened was so split-second decision Yes, that you can tell that she, she wasn't premeditating oh no this. this was very
0: off the cuff on november 3rd 2004 at this point we are a day before Centauri's transfer hearing and she's been incarcerated for two months now
1: i really like that they did that that they were telling us what was going on during the whole documentary how long she'd been incarcerated yeah. the date it was super cool and her age too they i liked that too they it continually really... told her age and it yeah. it's it's eye-opening
0: it is yeah because Well, towards the end, it's like, holy shit, it has been that
1: long. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and you see it, but you see it. Exactly. Yeah. Now, at this time, we have Dr. Burnett speaking with the biological mom, Georgina Mitchell, at Vanderbilt University Psychiatric Hospital. They're talking with her and Ellenette Brown, her adopted mother. Yes. Kind of together. And – Georgina's talking about how she had given her up for adoption about 14 years ago. So we know that she didn't give her up right off the bat. Yeah. She had her for about 18 months. And she hasn't seen her in all that time. So again, this was not an open adoption in any way, shape, or form. And Dr. Burnett is explaining to her that what they want to do is they kind of want to look at her and, you know, any potential mental disorders that may kind of run in the bloodline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, see... If there's anything that they can kind of trace back. Makes sense. Yeah. Georgina goes on to say that she was actually kind of excited and happy to see Centoya the day before this uh this sit down that they had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she got to see her in prison and kind of talk to her a little bit. And and she says that it was like looking at herself at 16. Uh they have the same traits and you know, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you can You can pick up things from your parents that you don't have to have ever seen. Yeah. And you can kind of emulate that.
1: Because it's a part of your DNA.
0: Right. It's genetics. Yeah. Yeah. Georgina then also mentions that she herself had really strong mood swings. She says that it does run in the family. She said her own mother shot herself in the stomach when she was in the second grade. So she had sent her to the neighbor's house and then shot herself.
1: And you guys, she lives. She lives. She's still alive and she's in this documentary. So <laughs> She is. And they never talk about it again. No. It's like, can we get a little bit more context about where the hell she shot herself? Because didn't they say it was
0: with a shotgun? They said it was with a shotgun. What in, her in her God's stomach? name? How do you not die from that? I don't know. <laughs> like, And it sounds like both her own mother and her mother's mother so her grandmother yeah. were both drunks they were both suicidal so a lot of mental issues yeah here. yeah totally genetics yes but so georgina leaves and while she is kind of raising syntoya as a baby she's not around her mother during this time she does go on to say that Santoya was a good baby and that the only thing is that it started to get really hard and she realized that she couldn't do it alone and i mean i wrote down omg all alone at 16 with a baby i mean holy shit i couldn't even imagine no and and we're not talking just like a single 16 year old girl with a baby living at home with her parents like we're talking about somebody kind of on the run right right Um, with a baby. How do you take
1: care of that baby? How do you make sure the baby's fed and has clothes and has a
0: house? And how do you pay for somebody to watch the baby while you go potentially make money? You know, it's a lot. Now, Ellenette Brown, the adoptive mother, the one who has now raised Syntoya from the age of about 18 months to two years of age to 16, she says that, you know, in the beginning, like, Centoya, it was really, really good. But then around middle school, that's when things started to change. She says she got kicked out and ended up going to alternative school. Now, I don't know if they call it this everywhere, but we had this in my hometown. We called it ALC, yep. the Alternative Learning Center. Yep. Okay, so anytime we heard ALC, we always assumed it was a troubled child mm-hmm. because that's what it was. It was always yeah. the kids that were getting in trouble in school and getting kicked out. Going there and finishing.
1: Well, you know, and I was thinking too, the reason I think this happened, that she was so good when she was younger, and then when she went into junior high, things started to get bad. Girls go through puberty, and I yeah. really think that your brain changes and you have a chemical imbalance just in general with your your body becoming a woman, right? Totally. And it totally is evident in this story that she's telling us that everything kind of flipped a switch. Right And things changed, like, overnight. Yeah. And I'm I'm assuming it had something to do with that.
0: Yeah. Lord have mercy on us all I with know. daughters. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Mine is at that point. She just started middle school. <gasps> oh, gosh. I'm not looking forward to that. No, no. Now, Ellenette goes on to say that Syntoya actually had run away for the first time and was afraid to come home, but had been gone for days when she got kicked out of school. She was only 12 years old. 12 years old. That is so scary. Seriously, I can't even admit. I would kick my daughter's ass if she ran. (laughs) First off, if she got kicked out of school. But definitely if she ran away, there's no way that she would be gone for for days. days. No, that wouldn't even be a thing. I would track her down like a bloodhound. (laughs) She
1: might track you down.
0: (laughs) She would have to work real hard to get away from me. Oh, man. Now, from that point on, Elinette says that it was constantly something. Mm-hmm. There were behavioral problems. You know, she had rebelled against structure in general, yeah. which, I mean, I think a lot of teenagers do, but it sounds like this just was something that kind of, like you said, came out of the blue. Yeah. And Elinette was probably just kind of thrown. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, her baby is no longer her baby. No. And is, you know, acting a fool. So and
1: leaving her house
0: and living yeah. on the street. Like, that is... Terrifying at that age. Super terrifying. Now, she had told Elinette that she didn't want to be at home because Elinette wouldn't allow her to drink or smoke and that she couldn't get high there. And, I mean, again, you're 12. Yeah. You have an entire adulthood to do that shit. Right. All you want. And trust me, it's fantastic when you're old enough to do it whenever you want. And when your body can... Deal with it. Right. Right? I mean, at that age,
1: your body should not be having those types of toxins in it. No. Your body at 12 years old is not ready to handle that stuff.
0: No. And your brain is still developing. Exactly. And that inhibits a lot. Exactly. Now, while Elanette is kind of giving this, you know, story of how she had kind of, you know, become this troubled teen kind of overnight, I'm looking at Georgina's face and you could just tell she's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it, you could also kind of tell there's a part of her, and I don't know, maybe I read this wrong, but in in her eyes, I felt like she was saying, holy shit, I wanted her to have a life better than mine, and I tried to give her that by giving her that opportunity with somebody yeah. else, and it backfired. Yeah. Didn't you kind of get that feeling from her face? Like,
1: Well, yeah, and I think she thought – that it was still her fault. Like,
0: yeah, yeah. With these
1: genetics, like, that this was her fault. It was because of who she was, who her mom was, who her grandma was,
0: that made Cintoya the way she is. Yeah, yeah. Like, doesn't matter how far away you get, the apple doesn't fall far. Right. But we
1: also learned something about Georgina. Yes and when she's pregnant with Centoya, and where a lot of this stems from, I think, mentally for for Georgina.
0: Now, during this whole interaction, Kathy Sinback is sitting there as well, because of course, she is going to be the one going in front of a judge. Mm -hmm. And she says that she wants all of this to be relayed to the judge in court, because they really want to give the judge a good idea that Centoya hasn't just been this, you know, troubled child her whole life like she was given opportunities to you know have a have a good childhood mm-hmm. and it sounds like she did up until yeah middle school exactly. so all of this needs to be related to the judge now on november 4th 2004 centoya is still 16 years old This is her transfer hearing. Now, Judge Betty Adams Green is the presiding judge over this case. Now, she's the one that is going to make the determination whether this is going to be staying in the juvenile courts or whether it's going to be moved on to the adult system and criminal court. Now, if she stays in the juvenile courts, she will be in juvenile detention until the age of 19 years old. Now, at that point, they don't really say, but I'm assuming there's going to be some type of like probation, maybe some, you know outside therapy, mandates, those types of things. But for the most part, I mean, she's only going to be in there for about three years. Right. They're probably going to put her or they would probably put her
1: in some sort of like halfway house or something that they could monitor her, make sure she's going to therapy, make sure she's doing everything that she needs to do to become a
0: law-abiding citizen. Right. Now she goes into the criminal courts. She is looking at life in prison. For first-degree murder. That is such a, like, holy shit. What a big difference. <laughs> big difference. Oh my
1: gosh, she'll be in for, like, three years. Yeah. Or 60 years. Right. With the possibility of parole at 51 years.
0: Yeah. Crazy. That That's such, such a leap. Now, Kathy Sinback says that she needs to show... That she has some type of identifiable mental health problems that can be corrected. Mm -hmm. So Kathy goes to bat for her. She tries to prove to her that it's worth the effort, after a murder charge, to only try her as a juvenile.
1: Now we get to hear Centoya telling her story and her account of that night. Yeah. On August 6th of 2004. Now she starts at 7 p.m. and Centoya was in the hotel room with her boyfriend slash pimp named cut i guess his name was cutthroat yeah on the street yeah that
0: was like a street name
1: that is terrifying my god don't be friends with someone named cutthroat oh my gosh what no. in god's name i don't even whatever <laughs> seriously she didn't think he was a pimp at the time but now looking back on it she realizes that he was Now she's asked what they were doing at the hotel and Centoya says that they were either getting high or having sex. That's all they ever did. Now Cut had told Centoya that night that she was slipping and she was becoming a slouch and needed to go out and get some money. If my fucking boyfriend ever said something to me like that... Oh, my God. Bye, bitch. Bye. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously, in her situation, she's super naive, very vulnerable, and is attracted to this, I'm sure. And doesn't look at it as
0: domestic emotional violence, right? Right. Well, and also, I mean, they don't mention it now, but they mention it later. He's 24 years old. Yes. So, he is a good eight years older than her. Like, in a way, I can almost see her kind of doing what he says. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Right. Yeah. So, when she's told this, she
1: leaves the hotel to find a ride to East Nashville to go to a specific spot where she knows that she can go out and prostitute. She ended up finding herself at a Sonic restaurant. And... She was approached by Johnny Allen in a white truck who had asked her if she needed a ride. And, of course, she said yes. Yeah. Now, Johnny had also asked her if she was up for any action, which she said was the insinuation for sexual needs and sure. speaking in that sexual
0: sense, right? I mean, what else would it really mean? Right. But yeah.
1: Right. And she said yes for $200. He said 100 $100. And then they decided on 150. Now, they went back to Johnny's house because no one was there. Johnny started talking about himself on the ride there. He's a real estate agent and did a lot of volunteer work. Told her he was a sharpshooter in the Army. Yeah. That's a weird thing to mention to someone that you don't know. Yes
0: and no. So being a sharpshooter is kind. It's a high honor.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it's
0: something not just everybody can do. And I do think when you are military, that's something that you're going to shout out as kind of one of your credentials. Um, It's going to kind of be on your list of things. However, I also feel like he's almost kind of trying to make himself look cool. And I think that could be it, too.
1: Or making himself
0: letting her know that he is in charge and she can't pull a fast one on him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Something, Something to that nature. Yeah. So, when they got to his house, she saw two shotguns downstairs, and he showed her a chrome gun with a black handle while she ate her food at the table. So, she had gotten food at Sonic before they left. Yeah. Which I just also found weird. Like, so, she's there for some sexual action, right? And he She sees the two shotguns downstairs and then he shows her another gun like why why do they need to get why do they need to go there right. it does it it's very odd to me I don't know obviously I've never been in that situation, but it's it's odd to me
0: yeah maybe it's like how some people are like, "Hey, here's my dogs and this guy's like, "Hey, here's my guns I guess I don't know
1: that 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 could totally be it absolutely. Yeah.
0: Now we
1: hear that Centoya started to get more nervous, and the more he spoke about the guns, the n- more anxious and nervous she got. She said she never went to people's homes to do this kind of stuff, and she always had went to hotels. So I think that even heightened her level of anxiety even more.
0: Well, yeah, because you're now in someone else's playing field,
1: right? And there's no one around. Right, no one knows where she is. There's not other people around in other hotel rooms. No one would know what happened to her. It's completely unfamiliar territory. Exactly. She had asked Johnny if they could go downstairs to watch TV. He had said yes. Now, the reason she tells us this was that she wanted to be closer to the door to escape once Johnny fell asleep. Yeah. I mean, That's I get how nervous that. she was. Yeah. She tells us that when they're downstairs, and I'm assuming they're in his bed... Johnny was first stroking her, but then grabbed her really hard in between her legs, and Santoya grunted and turned over really hard because she didn't want to do it. She didn't want to have this encounter with him. Yeah. And she said he had a fierce look in his eyes. She first thought he was going to hit her, but then he turned over and she thought he was grabbing a gun, so she grabbed her gun and shot him. The assistant district attorney general for Tennessee, Jeff Burks, starts questioning Sentoya at this time. And he states that Johnny was facing the other way sleeping when she shot him and Sentoya denied that accusation. Basically, he's saying that Johnny had been sleeping turned over when she shot him in the back of the head.
0: And they show a picture of him, you guys. Oh.
1: And – They're graphic. They're close up, It was very close up. I mean, it looks like he's sleeping. It totally
0: does. You just see a little bit of blood splatter, like, on the bed.
1: Yeah, like, kind of dripping down the side of the mattress. Yeah, like, you don't
0: even see the hole in the back of his head. Now, in that picture, the first thing that I noticed was that his hands were clasped. And I wrote that down. Yes. Because I was like, that's kind of weird. It is weird. If you're turning
1: over to grab something, your hands would never be in that position,
0: right? No. The only thing that I thought of is that if you were clasped around the handle of a gun and the gun fell. Ooh. That was what I
1: thought. Oh, I didn't even think about so that. So in
0: my head, he's got the gun, but he's holding it with both hands, like you would see in, like, a yeah, cop show. yep, yep. And his fingers are clasped around the handle of the gun- and then it's as if he was going to turn over. That would make sense. That was the only thing that I thought, because I was like, oh, that's weird. Why are his hands clasped right. like that?
1: Right. That would make sense. Yeah. That I never even thought of that. Yeah. But I also noticed that from behind, you could see they took a picture of him from behind, and the blood was like starting to pool like on the side of his body. So he must have been there for a decent amount of time. So right. that was like a telltale sign that... This is a dead body. Yeah. Obviously. The lividity
0: was setting in at yes, that point.
1: Yes. And it's still always freaky and weird to me to see those type of photos. So, yeah. Just forewarning, they're a little graphic. Yeah. So, Jeff Burks asks Centoya to explain to the court that she wanted to leave but was too scared he would do something, so she shot him. And then Cyntoia comes in and goes, it was based on the fact that he had guns and how he was acting with yeah. her. And that's where her anxiety and her nervousness came in. And Centoya tells him that she pretended to be asleep so he would go to sleep so she could sneak out. But the prosecutor says, or so he could go to sleep so you could shoot him and rob him. Yeah. Santoya ends on, I shot him because I thought he was going to shoot me. And... Everything about what she said seemed so genuine and so real. Yeah. The emotion on her face. She never had pauses. Like, she said it as a fact. Oh, yeah. Every single time she talked about anything.
0: So, to me, I believed her story. I totally believed it. Yeah. There's a part that she goes, why would I shoot somebody for no reason? That doesn't make no sense. That was quoted. Absolutely. And And the whole thing. And I was looking at her going, yeah. I mean, like, it doesn't make sense for normal people. No. Right? But again, she is under the assumption that everybody else understands that she did this out of a necessity and not out of opportunity. Exactly.
1: So we see an interview with Centoya after, and she feels that her account for what happened should have definitely touched the judge and sway her into deciding to keep her in the juvenile court. And honestly, I felt that she would go that way too yeah from the testimony I heard it would make sense to me that she would keep her in the juvenile court
0: yeah I think honestly though the fact of who she was hanging out with and what she was doing made her not look like a child in their eyes anymore
1: yeah and I think and that make her not trustworthy problem. yep mm-hmm. now we also find out from the district attorney that after Santoya shot Johnny she stole his wallet and his truck. So that definitely casts doubt on her story, which I totally get that. Totally understand. But she's also a kid who's broke. Yep. Who needs to bring money back to her pimp, Cut. Yep. And she doesn't know how to get home. So, first of all, she's in a different city from where Cut is. Yep. And she was driven there by Johnny. Now she's at his home by herself. Yeah.
0: What else would she do? Right. I don't get the impression she can just walk outside and hail a cab. No, she doesn't have money. And she doesn't have money for it. So, yeah. So, I get both sides of the coin and what it looks
1: like, but if you think about it logically, I can totally see that's why she did it. Yeah, me too. On-screen text pops up, and we see that two weeks later, Judge Betty Adams-Green decides to transfer Centoya to the adult system.
0: March 24th, 2005. At this point, Cyntoia is 17 years old, she's been incarcerated for about seven months, and she's now awaiting her criminal trial. Now, Cyntoia is noticeably upset about what happened at the transfer hearing. I mean, who wouldn't be?
1: As anyone would be, absolutely. Right. yeah.
0: And she talks about how she's been keeping a diary for her lawyers to get to know her. Because she was transferred to the adult system, she had to find a new legal team. Because as we mentioned, Kathy Sinback is part of the juvenile court system. Correct. She's not part of the criminal court system. Right, right. At this point, they introduce her new lawyers, Wendy Tucker and Rich McGee. They're going to represent her in her criminal trial. On July 20th, 2005... She's now been incarcerated for about eleven months. At this time, her criminal trial attorneys are starting to strategize. What are they going to do for this upcoming hearing? Yeah. Now, Wendy Tucker requested that Dr. Burnett continue with the evaluations that he's he was giving Sentoya back in the juvenile detention center. We need new information. She said questions are different this time. She's being charged with first degree murder, but if they can prove that this was not premeditated then they wouldn't be able to charge her with first-degree murder. Because, right. again, it has to be premeditated for it to be first-degree. Right. It all comes down to the mental state that she was in at the time. Now, one thing that they are really focusing on are the Miranda rights. Now, yes. we've all heard these, right? You know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, so on and so forth. We, we've all heard these. We know what they are. We know that they have to be read to us upon being arrested. So when it comes to that... They're starting to wonder, did she knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waive her right to remain silent? Because she didn't. She ended up speaking with police.
1: I I think she didn't understand what the Miranda rights were. Totally. When they were reading them to her,
0: I don't even think she fully understood. Well, no. It's kind of one of those things. You just hear it over and over and over, but you don't totally understand what it means. Right. Right. Now, interestingly enough, studies do show that 90% of juveniles arrested in the US do not understand their Miranda rights. And they speak to police without a parent or an attorney present. So, under the age of 18, you need to have a parent or an attorney present. I mean, 100%. You have to have these. You do not know what the fuck you're talking about.
1: It all is based upon the fact that none of us are taught this in school. Yeah. I don't remember ever learning about. Anything like that. Could we learn about taxes? Yeah. Could we learn about saving money or yeah. investing money? Could we learn about how to use a credit card normally in yeah. life or learn about Miranda rights and if something were to happen and what you should do? We don't learn about any of that stuff. No. In junior high, you you don't learn about any of that. And so I think that's where things went haywire here for Santoya because she did not understand what they meant. And she thought that if she would talk to the police, it would get her out of Going to prison for the rest of her life, I mean she she genuinely thought these police were on
0: her side, well, and that's the biggest mistake, right? Yeah, now, obviously, we want you know, the police to be there doing their jobs, keeping us safe. However, their job is also to lock up criminals, and they are going to do that. And in this case, I don't think they gave her. An option of, hey, do you want your mom to be here before we talk to you? I think it was more like, hey, if you talk to us now, we can get you some help. Yep. And she took it because she's a kid. And these are two grown-ass adults that seem to know what you know, how the world works. And I just see a lot of coercion there completely. They
1: knew that they could tell her something and she would believe them wholeheartedly.
0: Totally. So Dr. Burnett actually asks Centoya. You know, when she had been read the rights from the police officers and she said, well, yeah, she had, you know, been read them. She'd seen and heard the Miranda rights on Cops, the TV show before, mm-hmm. but she states that she didn't know that she could be quiet. Mm-hmm. You have the right to remain silent. That means you don't have to say shit. You don't have to say a damn word. Not a, you don't even have to breathe heavily. Right. Right. But a lot of people think that if they talk, it'll get them out of trouble. Yep. No. Number <sighs> one rule in true crime. Do not talk to the police without an attorney. Always. Always.
1: Even if you're innocent. Uh, e- especially talk, if you're innocent. Talk to a lawyer. You need to make sure that they are not going to twist your words or make it look different than it actually is. Always get a lawyer. Yes.
0: They then are kind of going back and forth on the, like, video recording from her interview with the police that night on August 8th, 2004. And interestingly enough, this is done at 3.37 in the morning. Right? Red flag flag. immediately.
1: I get why. Sure. Because – You've got to do it right away. This happened late at night the day before, so it makes sense that it would be that late – or I should say early morning – but still, it, what type of mind frame is she in at that time of the night? She's tired. She She's probably hungry. She's hungry. We find out that she's high, too. Yeah. So it's like she's so impaired. She doesn't know what is even going on or what things are being said to her. So
0: I feel that that was just that, – that was the nail in the coffin for her. For sure. I mean, they even – start to read her her rights and she's mumbling mm-hmm I mean that shouldn't be allowed no you should have to specifically state yes no yes loud enough for the recording to hear not a you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I was I was pissed watching that and of course the police are promising that they can you know quote help if they can now Dr. Burnett is actually going through each part of the Miranda rights with Santoya yeah. and asking her you know What does this mean to you? And she's explaining what it means to her because they want to gauge her understanding of the rights and whether or not she actually knew what the hell she was doing back then. And she claims that now she does understand them. But back then, like you said, she was high. She was tired. And she was told that if she just told them everything, that they could give her a deal. So why wouldn't she just rip the Band-Aid off and give her all the information now and be done with it.
1: Well, and these are adults telling a child this, right? I mean, instinctually, you want to believe these officers. You want to trust in them that they're telling her the truth
0: and being genuine human beings. Yeah. Right? Well, and she even says that the police told her that nine times out of 10, that if people don't talk, that they would end up doing life in prison. So she's thinking, well, holy shit. Yeah, scare tactic. Right. Yeah. So they keep telling her, we'll talk to the DA for you. We'll get you a deal if you just tell us everything that happened. Don't fall for it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Richard McGee, one of her attorneys, is watching the taped interrogation slash confession uh, and says that, you know, she is telling the truth that, she was kind of coerced into giving Mm -hmm. information that shouldn't have been given. She came in with a false belief that you're better off to talk to the police, and then they misled her.
1: Completely
0: misled her. And Wendy Clark even points out that it's interesting how it's two very large men interrogating Mm -hmm. her. So she is this tiny little 16-year-old. Now, granted, in that video, she did look to be dressed older than 16 yeah however again we know what she was doing as far as how to collect money basically these girls are dressing the part right Right. we've all seen pretty women
1: Mm -hmm. exactly exactly but it's still intimidating super intimidating they were huge huge grown men it's still intimidating regardless and i genuinely think she wanted to believe them i genuinely think she wanted to believe that they were good people and they actually were going to help her
0: Well, and in her case, too, what she does for a living, she's used to having, you know, men doing kind of what she wants. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, on August 21st, 2006, Santoya now is 18 years old, and she's been incarcerated for two years. Now, this is the morning of Santoya's criminal trial. Now, she says that her biggest fear is hearing a guilty verdict on all counts. She says that she daydreams a lot about getting out and going home and that she probably does it too much, but mm. it's kind of the only thing that keeps her going. And I totally get that.
1: Maybe the only thing that keeps her hope alive. Right. Seriously. Yeah.
0: She says that she thinks back to that 16-year-old who was so reckless and loud and that she feels that she understands so much more now, even just being two years older. Right. Uh, she realizes that her impression on people is different and it's very important sometimes, And that she's grappling with things like being told lies to the jury about her Mm -hmm. through court. She's just really kind of worried at this point because impressions are strong. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that she says that she's worried about whether or not to even look at the jury during the court proceeding. Which I thought was super interesting looking back at like the Gabriel Fernandez trials Mm -hmm. where Isaro never looked at the jury and that was kind of like you know, kind of rub them the wrong way, which as it should. And in this case, she's just not sure. Like, should she look at them? Should she not? Does it look cocky if she's looking at them? Or, you know, is that kind of like begging for forgiveness kind of a thing?
1: And I think she was worried about her facial expressions. She says that. You know, like she's worried that she is going to make an expression that's not –
0: doesn't cast her in a good light.
1: Yeah, like a face that just happens that she doesn't yeah. even realize she's doing, right? Oh, yeah. Because she's a teenager, yeah. right? And they make the annoyed face and the pissed off face and
0: they roll scrunchy, their eyes, or roll their eyes without yeah. really thinking about it, and they
1: don't think about it. So I think she was actually more nervous about that. She didn't yeah. want them to think of her in a bad light, like you stated. Yeah. So we're now at the criminal trial which was from August 21st through the 25th in 2006. Now, Judge J. Randall Wyatt Jr. will be the one presiding over Centoya's case. Say that name five times fast. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And what Centoya's defense attorneys are going to do, they're obviously going to do a self-defense case because Centoya is telling everyone that she did kill him. Yeah. But it was purely in self defense and not premeditated. Yeah.
0: Not once has she said she did not commit this crime.
1: Yep. From day one, she has always admitted to killing Johnny. Yeah. Now, the DA, Jeff Burks, starts the trial with his opening statement. He's basically explaining who Johnny was. He's such a great guy, real estate agent, all that kind of good stuff. Wendy Tucker starts with her opening statement, and she's explaining Centoya's hard life, being prostituted, beaten etc. So first on the stand was Detective Charles Robinson, who was one of the detectives who first interviewed Centoya on August 8th of 2004. Rich McGee, Centoya's defense attorney, asks him if he had had a conversation with Centoya that night before the cameras had been turned on. Now, right away, shady, red flags, that is sending alerts in my brain. Right. That should not be allowed, period. Right. Like, at all. None. She knows she's being detained and she's being questioned. So do not say anything until you're in that room and the cameras are turned on. Then you can have all the conversation. So nothing looks like it's...
0: Kind of staged almost in a way.
1: Yeah. Or things that are happening under the rug that we don't know about. That right. can't be accounted for. Right. Rich had brought up the part on the tape when Centoya stopped him while he was stating no promises were made, and santoya said promises of what? Detective Robinson had stated that he just said they would let the DA know that she cooperated with them and that she gave them a statement. And exaggeration is a tool that they are trained to use. Yeah, it's a tactic. It is a tactic to get people to confess yep. to things, you know? And so I totally think that that's not what was just said. No. I think there was quite a bit more where he's all buddy-buddy with Centoya before the camera start. Like, tr- you can trust me. Agreed. You know, I totally think that there's more that happened there. And I could kind of tell by the way he was on the stand, he just seemed so cocky, confident in himself. Yeah. I didn't like that. It, that rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Yeah. I totally got that feeling, too. We meet Amy McMaster, MD. She's the chief medical examiner for Davidson County. And we also meet Lisa Naylor, who's the assistant district attorney. Amy McMaster states that his wound was immediately fatal. Johnny Allen's hands were clasped in the crime scene photos, and the medical examiner tells us that he had been in that exact position when he died since the gunshot killed him instantly. Yeah, he wouldn't have been able to move. Exactly. So his body, he wasn't able to move his body past the point of when the gunshot went off. Like he wasn't alive longer than that. Right. Yeah. It's not like he tried to crawl out of bed and get away and bled out. Right. Well, and she also states that his body couldn't have voluntarily moved either. Like right. it would have instantly killed him. It's not like his body could have just convulsed in a way. Exactly. Yep. Ellenette Brown is now on the stand, who again is Centoya's adoptive mother. We hear a call recording from jail between elanette and santoya and santoya was stating that she believed she was always getting life from day one
0: yeah.
1: of this this trial and and of this case now santoya always had told her mom that she shot him over being fearful that story never changed it never. was constant and always the same yeah now we get the closing statement of the da And the DA is showing a photo of Johnny with his hands clasped, because I think that was a huge point in their case, was the fact that his hands were clasped. Yeah. And that couldn't have occurred after he had been shot. Yeah. And he was explaining how this wasn't self-defense and how they have proven over the last four days that she was guilty. And he even used her words from that phone call with her mother because she had stated that I had killed a man, I executed him. So they use that I executed him statement a lot to preface yeah. that it was premeditated, she did it on purpose, she wanted to execute him kind of verbiage. Right. And
0: I honestly think that that is something that was fed to her. Absolutely. I don't think those were her words. I think somebody said that to her in the first interrogation. I totally and agree she with that. Used
1: it totally agree with that because I don't feel like she could even
0: understand how to use that word. Well, and in all honesty, she's using it out of context. You know, when you have a kid who uses a word that doesn't, they're Mm -hmm. not using it totally correctly, Yeah, but in a way you kind of understand how they're trying to use it. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, That's what that felt like to me. And I was like, and Ellenette, even in the phone call back to her, I was like, Toya, why would you say that? Right. I mean, she's like, stop. Those are the kinds of things that are going to get you in trouble. Exactly. It's the way you're wording it. And again, that just goes back to her being 16. Absolutely.
1: Sintoya's defense explains to the jury the two different sides of Johnny Allen. Basically, this mild-mannered real estate agent during the day, but that he also had this other side of him that would come out. I mean, he was a 43-year-old picking up a 16-year-old for sex.
0: On a Friday night. On a Friday night. I mean, why would you be trolling around looking for kids or anybody? I mean, who knows? Maybe he didn't know she was 16, but he certainly knew she was young. I mean, she looks like she's 12. I'm not kidding.
1: Maybe she wore a lot of makeup, so maybe she could make herself look older. But when you see her in that prison jumpsuit, she literally looks 12. Yeah. And that's the oldest I can say that she looks. Yeah. She
0: looks like a child. Yeah. Well, and the waitress at Sonic even described her to be so young looking that she assumed Toya was his daughter or niece.
1: Right. When they went in to order food. That was weird.
0: So right there, like, obviously, she looked young. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Now, the jury reached a verdict in just six hours. And this is what they read. We, the jury, find the defendant, Centoya Denise Brown, count one, guilty first-degree murder, count two, guilty felony murder, count three, guilty special aggravated robbery.
0: It's just something that would take your breath away. Well, and when they read that off, she just had, like, the deer in the headlights look. Yeah. Like, I don't think she's still fully understood.
1: No, and six hours... To deliberate on first-degree premeditated murder?
0: Don't you feel like there was a little bit of a bias in that courtroom? Yeah. I'm not going to make this about a race thing, but I think it's fucking clear that everybody in this courtroom was white Mm -hmm. except her. Yeah. And her family. Yeah. And I think that they just kind of looked at her as being just another statistic. Yeah. Yeah. And they yep. didn't give her
1: the time of day. Yep. Another prostitute that just needed to get money and just shot him because she needed his truck and money. And I, yep. I totally think they believed the DA's yeah, story. They believed
0: this narrative that wasn't true. Yep. Absolutely. Immediately after that, they show Santoyas sitting in the jail on the phone calling her mom, Elanette, and telling her that she got life. And she's telling her mom – and. Honestly, she seemed so mature at this point to me. Yes, But she's like, it's – but she kept calling her mommy, which also was like, oh,
1: Heartbreaking.
0: My daughter calls me mommy all the time. I and know. I hope she calls me mommy until she's 47. I know. But she'll say, you know, mommy, it's, it's okay. I don't want you to stress out. I got this. I don't want you to stress out and get sick because that would be worse for me right now. I can't think about that and I don't want that to happen. Oh my gosh. And she tells her, My life isn't over. I'm still going to get old. I just have a change of plan for my life now, which I was just like, Girl, who are you? Seriously. Because I would have been sobbing and uncontrollably.
1: I couldn't talk on the phone. I would not. No way.
0: Hell no. No. No way would I have been able to talk on the phone. I would have been literally a mess of a person yeah. for like months. I think most people would. Oh yeah. That that changes your entire life. Yep. And I would look at it as my life is over. Yes. And she didn't look yes. at it like that. And that's no. fucking weird. But awesome. It is it's actually pretty cool.
1: Yeah. It's actually pretty cool that she was so negative previously. And that it almost was like she turned over a new leaf and was trying to look at the positive in life and the hope in life, right? Yeah. And it's crazy. And I wouldn't even
0: thought about it, but she's like, "I'm my life isn't over. I still have a life. I'm still going to get old." I was like, "Oh my god." (laughs) I I it just never those words would never have come to me.
1: No, not at all. No,
0: Elanette. At one point goes on to say that one of the hardest things that she had to learn about all of this was the fact that her daughter had, you know, been in sexual relationships at such a young age. And that was kind of hard for her to wrap her head around, which I totally get. And then she also goes on to say that it wasn't just with, like, a boy or a couple of boys. It was, like, with many boys and even men. Yeah. And that's got to just be hard as a mom to know about your daughter. Yeah, that's really hard to think about. At such a young age. I mean, because she ran away for the first time at 12. So who's to say that this all happened just at 16, right? Well, and you almost lean more towards, like, a rape type
1: of scenario versus – did she really want to do that with some of these people? Right. I mean, even if she was prostituting, I don't really believe she
0: wanted to be doing that. Well, and ugh, I just think about the type of people that would approach her. Yeah. And I think, ew. Yeah. And Ellenette goes on to say that she's also worried that she'll never have that mother-daughter, you know, relationship yeah. that they should have. Right. You know, because she's going to be in prison.
1: And she might never see her outside of the prison. Right. Like, that might be the rest of their life and what they do together is those quick visits to the prison. Yeah. And that's
0: heart-wrenching. Oh, totally. Now, on March twenty seventh, two 2008, we are brought to – and I might be saying this wrong – it's either Phoenix or Phoenix City, Alabama – it's spelt like Phoenix, but without an O.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was, so I, was, I like, was thinking Phoenix. Okay, me too. Uh,
0: and we go to Georgina Mitchell. Now, she is, of course, Santoya's birth mother. Yep. And she was saying how she had gotten pregnant on her 16th birthday and that she was from a very unstable home. Or rather, the home was stable, but her mother was not. Correct. She says that there was a lot of mental health problems in the family. And that Georgina had looked for attention from her friends and from male companions. Because she just wasn't getting positive attention at home. Yeah. She said that she also spent a lot of time drinking. She says that she would drink before school. She drank while she was pregnant. There was a lot of alcohol abuse happening. That,
1: like, hurt my heart so bad. Drinking when you're pregnant is just... oh. Well, being that age, you don't... I don't Get think, the education. No. And I really at, – at, at Where she was in her life and the, the mental illness that she had and all that kind of stuff, it never fazed her. It no. was all about what she wanted, what made her feel good, what made her feel happy. Because I'm assuming she was just like Centauri where she felt sad most yeah. of the time unless was the, she was
0: doing this. Right. I think it was the only way she could get through the day. Yeah.
1: It was a coping mechanism for her.
0: Totally. Yeah. She also said that she had gone on to keep drinking – for about eight months of Santoya's life. So mm-hmm. after she was born, she was still drinking for those first eight months. Now, who's to say if she was also breastfeeding at that time? We don't know. Right. So we don't know if Santoya was also getting it at that time frame. Right. Or if it had stopped once she was, you know, born. But then she goes on to say that she had moved on to crack cocaine at that point. So she was about 17 years old. She has an eight-month-old. She's now getting into crack cocaine. Now, along with that, she also was introduced to prostitution as a way to afford this new high right. that she was achieving. She says that she had been raped repeatedly. She had had guns to her head. She had been robbed. I mean. That is
1: so terrifying. Well, and
0: can you see the, like, parallel, right? you know, between the two? I mean, they're identical. Yeah. She says on December 18th of 1988, she went to jail. So I'm guessing this is about the time when she loses custody of Centoya.
1: Well, it would make sense because her mother wouldn't be able to probably take care of Centoya. Her mm. mother's an alcoholic too and yeah. is just as
0: mentally unstable as she is. Yeah. And they actually bring up her mother in the documentary too. Her name yeah. is Joan Warren. And Wow, what a mess. Uh, yep. Remember, this is the woman who shot herself in the stomach, you guys. I wish she would have showed us her scar <laughs> or something. <laughs> I
1: know. Like, I wanted to hear more about that story. I why know, do you not too. tell us?
0: <laughs> and, yeah. Now, Joan says that at one point she had spoken with the attorneys and that being from Tennessee had everything to do with why the trial went the way it did. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, I'm I'm – Pulling out that race card. We're in the South. Mm -hmm. I I believe that was a big, big determination factor.
1: Well, and I think the laws, as we've come to find out, are way more strict in Tennessee than they would have
0: been in Alabama. Yes, absolutely. One thing that I thought was really fucking interesting, too, is that Joan goes on to say that she had even wished that her own mother had had a hysterectomy at the age of 16, (laughs) which would have negated her life completely. And I was like, wow. And her daughter – Georgina's sitting there and Georgina's like rolling her eyes, just kind of like, okay, you're wishing your own existence never happened, which then would mean mine never even happened. She says that she just wished that she had never even had her own children (laughs) to live and go through what they did. And I mean, I can respect that feeling, but at the same time, like, your daughter's right next to you, man.
1: And I think that is just how hard their life has been. Yeah. That they would have preferred to not live it again, you know? And Georgina was kind of laughing when she was talking about her mom needing a
0: hysterectomy and all that kind of stuff, because I think she believed it a little bit herself too. Well, and I think she's probably heard this story her whole life. Yeah. It's probably something that she's just been always, you know, around. Right. Now, in July of 2010, we have Santoya at 22 years old. She's been incarcerated at this time for five years and 11 months. And she now has this new pro bono legal team. Now, for those of you who maybe aren't, you know, hip to the lingo, pro bono means free. Yep. So a lot of times it's very large firms who will kind of pick cases and work on them for free. One, because they believe that this case deserves another chance, but also it kind of hypes them up, right? For sure. It's kind of like free advertisement if they do well with it.
1: And these are good attorneys.
0: These are good attorneys. These very are very good just attorneys, shoddy. very expensive attorneys. Yes. So yeah. they do a certain amount of pro bono work. So we meet Charles Bone. Now, he is an attorney at the law offices of Bone McAllister Northern PLLC in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, he says that his friend, Patsy Cottrell, who was a court of appeals judge in Tennessee and a widow of Ross Alderman, who was a public defender in Nashville at the time that Centoia was first charged, told him about a documentary showing a girl who had been given life in prison as a 16-year-old. So Charles goes and sees this documentary, and he's blown away. Yeah. Now, he ends up being a post-conviction relief attorney, and he's just moved – on how completely unfairly Centoya had been treated during her trials. Now, his partner, Jay Houston Gordon, was also struck by the alcohol abuse that Georgina Mitchell talks about during her pregnancy. Right. And he says, this girl didn't have a chance before she was even born. They decided to spend time and money on experts of fetal alcohol syndrome to dissect Centoya's brain and figure out if this could be a Big reason on why it happened, why she had put herself in this situation to begin with, how it had unfolded, and why she chose to do what she did at that moment.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this angle is genius. It truly is.
0: It I wasn't expecting and it. And
1: how did they miss this during her first go at it, you yeah. know, her first trial? How did they miss something like this? This angle is a trial changing thing this will ch- this could change the entire outcome of a trial and it's just crazy that now she's been in prison for you know
0: 5 years s- 5
1: years or 6 years and yeah it's just it's crazy
0: i mean it also kind of goes to like the sign of the times right like we hear our parents say things like Oh, you know, my mom had a drink or my mom smoked while we were pregnant. We turned out just fine. We're just fine. Yeah. So I think it's one of those things that, you know, science is catching up and it's showing us that, no, things were not always fine. We just didn't know.
1: And there's so many more tests that can be
0: done now, right? On people who have had to endure those
1: things as a fetus that they couldn't change. This wasn't their choice. And so I think that is where we're getting all of these facts about these types of things. Agreed. We're now at November 13th and 14th of 2012. Centoya is 24 years old and we're at her appeal hearing. She's now been incarcerated for eight years and three months. Centoya questions out loud about how is she going to spend the rest of her life in prison. And all I have down on my notes is I would feel the same exact way. Oh, yeah. At that age, at 24 years old, that's only four years younger than what I am right now. Mm -hmm. And just to think in your mind that you could spend the rest of your natural life in prison is terrifying. Yeah. We find out that Centoya is actually going to college while in prison, and that's currently her main focus aside from her case. We see on-screen text that states, Two-thirds of criminal appeals filed in state courts are reviewed. Of these, 81% of them are denied. Judge J. Randall Wyatt will be the one to also preside her appeals trial. We, of course, learn that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is what her defense will be presenting at the appeal trial as well as ineffective counsel. Wendy Tucker is on the stand, Syntoia's former criminal defense attorney. Paul Bruno, one of her new defense attorneys, is asking her if she had ever heard of fetal alcohol syndrome. Wendy stated that she had heard of it, but never used it as a defense or in a trial in any form. Paul then asks, did you seek any assistance from any medical professionals in the fetal alcohol syndrome spectrum? She said, I did not. Why would she? Right. That wouldn't make any sense. If it wasn't even on her radar, she would have never assisted any medical professionals, but he wanted to state it as a fact that it never happened.
0: Yeah. They were more focused on mood swings back then.
1: Correct. Yeah. Now we get Dr. Richard Adler on the stand, and he's a forensic and clinical psychiatrist. And he is asked, what is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? He states that it's an umbrella term. That alcohol is a heinous poison to a developing fetus, as we all know already. Now, the defense asks him, what is the effects of a fetus whose mother was drinking while pregnant? Mm -hmm. And Dr. Richard Adler says that alcohol is considered one of the worst toxins, and the brain is the organ that is most negatively affected by it. Yeah. Which makes sense, especially when it's a developing fetus brain, of course. Right. The defense. Did you make an evaluation of Centoya Brown? Dr. Adler, yes. The defense. When did you do that? Dr. Adler, June 24, 2011. Defense. What conclusion did you come to? Dr. Adler, Miss Brown has alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. She is seriously impaired. Her functional abilities are terrible. She does not function like a person. She's equivalent to a person with mild retardation. And when this is stated, Centoya is breaking down because I don't even think she's
0: ever heard this herself. I don't think she has either. And I think it also is a bit of a blow because she's currently taking college classes and she (sighs) is probably thinking, why bother? I'm an idiot.
1: Right. And I think it comes a little bit full circle for her. Like she understands now.
0: Yeah. Why this is happening to her. Yeah, it was probably more of like also a realization of like, holy shit, that explains so much that I couldn't explain before. Absolutely.
1: Dr. Adler continues to state that people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders have a remarkably higher rate of problems with the law. She was suffering this at the time of her arrest in 2004 because they double check and make sure. Is this something that's new or is this something that has happened her whole life? And he, of course, says it's happened since she was born.
0: Yeah. and Before will she was born. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Before she is born and will continue until she's an adult and probably until she dies. Yeah. Now, her defense is stating that there is clear and convincing evidence that she has this brain damage. She had it because her mother abused alcohol while pregnant This brain damage has caused her to not be able to control herself when she sees chaos. Makes sense. Yeah. Now the DA comes in and says that the mother is not a trustworthy source because she's in prison. And how can they trust her statement about drinking while pregnant? This diagnosis can be a scapegoat for any bad behavior. And again, I think they're just trying to hold on to any, like, thread of... You know, doubt, right? For sure. Like, Put that bit of doubt like, oh, she's not a trustworthy person. I mean, you can't make this shit up. I mean, this is a serious illness
0: that a lot of people suffer from. Yeah. It's documented. Absolutely. At great length. It's why we're told not to drink while we're pregnant. Exactly.
1: Now, in the appeals process, there's very limited opportunity for relief. That's why people get to have a certain number of appeals, but most do not get granted. They proved that she had this disorder and couldn't control her impulses. And you have to prove that no reasonable juror would have convicted her if they had been presented with this evidence at her original trial. We find out that
0: the judge denied their appeal. Yeah. At that point, the documentary cuts back to Georgina and her mother, Joan Warren, back in Phoenix, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And we hear Joan kind of... I mean, she's sitting at her table and she's doing like a craft while she's talking. And she's talking about how she had experienced sexual abuse and violence when she was young and had even become pregnant after being raped one time. Gina then goes on to say how she had so much hate towards her mother growing up for not protecting her as a young girl. It sounds like there was a family member of a neighbor in the mobile home Community community that they lived in at the time. And it sounds like Joan would send Gina over there to this house. And this guy by the name of Walter would molest her from about the age of like 6 to 10 years old, she says. And then would like send her home with a $20 bill. And so sick. It it really was. And I was thinking in my head, I'm like, did Joan get that 20 bucks every time like was it that joan needed the money Uh, and walter was like well i'll give you 20 bucks just send just send gina over here for a little bit was it that or was it 20 dollars to keep gina quiet but it sounds like she wasn't quiet because she would ask joan uh, and beg her not to make her go Uh,
1: oh that broke my heart like (sighs) i could not imagine that as a mother
0: and it was fucking disgusting oh my god i'm just like Ugh, you're such a gross bitch. I couldn't – I was like – I couldn't even look at her and feel bad for her because I was just so disgusted at the same time. And Gina goes on to say that, you know, the fear that she had builds hate in your heart. And I totally get that. Yeah. And I think that also is something that Toya had. Yes. Yeah. On December 9th of 2016 – now, we jump ahead a little bit here because at this point, Toya is 28 years old. She's been incarcerated for 12 years, four months – Centoya's on a call with like the filmmakers of this documentary. Yep. So they followed her throughout this whole thing.
1: Yeah. For, for all the 14 years or however long they, they were filming her
0: for 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. So they're doing like a little, I guess, you know, check in interview kind of with her. And she says that she's realizing now her her actions really affect others, which is a big, Big realization because she she's 28 now versus 16. Right, right. That's a long time. She says that now she's working on maintaining and building healthy, positive relationships with healthy, positive people, which I think is also just such a great thing that she uses healthy and positive as her words because yeah. she didn't have that before.
1: And I don't think she wants to go back to that negative thinking because she's been
0: so negative. Very And she says that, you know, at this point, she's been forced to grow up in prison and to build a life there. Mm -hmm. On November 15th of 2017, she's now 29 years old. She's been incarcerated for 13 years, three months. And Centoya's case makes headlines.
1: I remember this. I do, too. It was blown up all over social media. It's all I saw. You saw many celebrities, Kim Kardashian, a few other um, celebrities just... Really going after and, her. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it up yeah. And like
0: memes everywhere. Oh my gosh. On screen text tells us that Stacey Case at Fox 17 Nashville reports on a changed Tennessee law inspired by Centoya's story that minors can no longer be charged and sentenced as prostitutes. Now, this means that back in 2004, she was considered a prostitute. Yeah. But now, she would be considered a sex slave, someone who didn't stand a chance against the men who used her. Even pop superstar Rihanna shares the story on social media using the hashtag free Santoya Brown. Yeah. And it goes viral, over like Over a said. million
1: tweets or a million um, hashtags.
0: Yeah, yeah, over a million tweets over this hashtag. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. Um, so basically, she was a victim of sex trafficking, and at that time, No one looked at her that way. They looked at her as a prostitute who did this out of cold blood. Absolutely. They decide to seek the help of the governor. Charles Bone, the attorney for Syntoia, helps her file a petition for clemency with the parole board and the governor asking for relief. Not a lot of hearings for clemency occur, um, but this was filed by Syntoia on December 19th of 2017. And it includes a letter from her explaining to the judge why she believes she should be granted clemency. Yeah. It also includes letters from the president of Lipscomb University, where she got her degree while she was incarcerated. She it, had
1: a ton of them.
0: Yeah. And it addresses that she even had a 4.0 grade point average. That's awesome. I mean, she's not fucking around. No, not at all. And she had a ton of recommendations. Oh my gosh. Page after page after page. So many letters from people in the community. I mean, the mayor even spoke on her, the juvenile judge that she had even spoke to the situation, different advocacy groups. I mean, everybody's saying she's the perfect person to be considered for clemency because this doesn't happen often. Right. Even Dr. William Burnett, the psychiatrist who had been examining her Basically, since she went into the system at 16, yes, yep, agreed that she had grown up both intellectually and socially and had learned a lot in her time served. And this became such an interest because of the problem of sex trafficking. And while in college, While she was incarcerated, she became very interested in the problem of sex trafficking. And she had even written a term paper on the topic. Yeah, She wanted to get involved in this because she realized that's exactly what happened to her. Absolutely.
1: She finally had a better understanding of what was going on when she was that age. Yes. We're now at May 19th of 2018. Syntoia is 30 years old. This is one week before Syntoia's parole hearing. They want to show the parole board that she has been rehabilitated since her incarceration and that she can be a useful person in society. In 2004, she was considered a prostitute at 16 years old. Today, she would be a victim of sexual predators. Totally
0: agree with that 100%. Oh, and it's such a big thing in our like in our life today. Yeah.
1: They're wanting to commute her sentence down to second-degree murder. So they're not asking her to be fully commuted of the charge, period. Right. But just have the sentence lowered to second-degree instead of first-degree. Yeah. This would make her eligible for parole because of how long she's already been in prison. Yeah. We're now at May 23rd of 2018, still 30 years old. This is Santoya's parole hearing. She's been incarcerated for 13 years and nine months. We see camera crew outside. It's really heating up because
0: now this has already been in the media. So everyone's watching this. Yeah, it's not just a local thing. Not at all. This is national. Absolutely.
1: Now, the defense says that this is the story of a transformation of a life wasted. A child who has become a beautiful, intelligent, caring, educated woman who can make things better in this world. Centoya also gets to speak. And she states that she wants to start by saying thank you. I've prayed to be able to meet with you. What I did was horrible. I killed Johnny Allen and it stayed with me this whole time. I was locked up at 16. I had no choice but to change and live a different life. I do pray that you show me mercy and give me a second chance, but I do respect any decision that you make. And that to me was just. That would be so hard to say. And it was so heartfelt. Yeah. I mean, she's choking back tears. You can tell that she's waited a long time to be able to do this. And this is a huge thing for her. It's scary. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like this is kind
0: of her last chance.
1: Well, and she doesn't want to say the wrong thing. Right. And this is her last chance because all of her appeals are done. The last thing she can do is seek help from the governor. Yeah.
0: And she's more educated now. Yeah. So she knows what can happen.
1: Preston Ship comes up to speak on Santoya's ha- behalf, and he is the former appellate prosecutor who was on her case back in 2008.
0: This was so crazy to me. This
1: is bonkers. Seriously. He had read it all about her case, read everything that had to do with it, examined every single exhibit, and argued that she spend the rest of her life in prison. Fast forward, she just so happened to be a student in his class, and he had no idea about it until he got a court opinion in the mail, and it was for Centoya. Preston finally made the connection that she was actually the luminous student that he had had, in his class, he had never put two and two together. is that cra- It's just crazy. It is so crazy. Yeah. Like, what are the odds? So crazy. So he obviously apologized to Centoya about yeah. what he had done. And all she said was that you were just doing your job.
0: Seriously? Who is, mean, is she?
1: Mother she Teresa? Seriously, she's so kind-hearted and forgiving. And understanding. And understanding. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: But you could tell that she was hurt.
1: Yes. yes. I mean, And he stated that, too. Yeah. He knew that, but she still was just very understanding about the yeah. whole
0: situation. Well, I mean, just imagine you find out that your teacher is the one who basically voted to keep you in prison. Yeah. And now you have to finish out however long the class is with this person. Absolutely. And not have, like, hate towards them. Right. It's beyond me. It is. It's hard to do that. It's yeah. really hard to do that as a person. Wouldn't know. I hate people way too easily. I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
1: Now, Preston said that justice is more about trying to achieve the right outcome than it is about alleging rule violations. Thank you. Which is what we're all screaming, right? Seriously. Now, the original defense attorney, Katherine Sinback, wanted to show who Centoya was. It all came full circle because she had to do this at the beginning of her trial and when she was working with her to get her to stay in that juvenile system. And now she's doing the same thing to get her clemency. And she said that children's cases deserve to be reviewed. Agreed. A hundred percent. They are not the same person when they're a teenager as they are when they're adults like thank god uh, that yes thank god for that because none of us would be alive today <laughs> oh
0: my gosh no i certainly would not be able to hold a job if i was the same person i no, was back in no what no there's
1: so much that you have to learn and your brain is still really developing yeah like you're not fully developed to
0: calm down absolutely
1: The panel now starts speaking to the victim's family and friends, and we only see one of them. Yeah. We see Anna Whaley. She's speaking on behalf of the whole family, and she was a friend of Johnny Allen. She states that Johnny has a voice. His family have a voice. She hopes sincerely that God has transformed Syntoya's life. Johnny is missed, and this is a very sad story. And I was actually kind of waiting to hear how she would want her to remain in prison. I was was waiting for anything. Yes, I was waiting for there to be that animosity, that anger of like, she deserves to
0: stay in prison. And there wasn't any of that. Honestly, I think they cut it out. They must have because I'm like... That felt way too... Short. Short and just like not... There was no substance to it.
1: Yeah, so I'm like, that's... Really interesting that that's all we heard. Yeah, and they didn't have anything bad to say. So I was thinking, like, you know, maybe they turned over a leaf, and maybe they did, you know, and maybe they're like, okay, well, she served a good amount of time. She's been in prison for fourteen years. Well, and let's remember the fact that he picked her up. Exactly. So he started it. I, f- I found that I found that interesting. Yeah. Now it came to the vote. The vote came down to communing down to second degree murder changing her parole eligibility to 2029, leaving her being in prison for 25 years served, and some declined the application. So no heart, no nothing. She doesn't get anything at all. We're not even going to recommend her at all to the governor. Right. They put together a recommendation list or letter, essentially, to the governor and they said that he's the one that makes the final
0: decisions. Yeah. Of course he is. Ultimately it is up to him.
1: But it was totally divided. The group was completely divided about upon what they wanted to do.
0: Yeah. Why are they even allowed to have 3 options with an even number of people voting? Why is that okay? I feel like there should always be an odd number so one has an right. upper hand. Right. Right? I don't
1: it probably because it's not a real like Trial. It's not like she's going to be getting out either way with her decision. So I think that they can be very individualized
0: with their responses. It's just so weird that it ended up being two, two and two. Yeah, super weird. January 7th of 2019. Now, Cyntoia is 30 years old. She's been incarcerated for 14 years and five months. And the governor's decision has been made. Pins and needles I have. I was literally mm-hmm. watching this going, oh, my gosh. I know. Now, Charles Bone, Jay Houston Gordon, and Kathy Sinback are on their way to the prison to meet with santoya to discuss the governor's decision. Now, the governor's lawyer, Dwight Tarwater, had called the attorneys to say that they wanted to meet, but strictly in private. They yep. were not allowed to tell anybody they were meeting to find out what the decision was. Yep. And this wasn't going to be a public event or no, no press no. or nothing like that. No. And so they bring him in and they say how confused they were when the governor actually walks in. They weren't expecting to yeah. meet with him face to face. Yeah. I mean, he's got a lot of things going on. Who knew that he would take the time out of his day to actually meet with them? Exactly. And he explains that he is going to commute her sentence to 15 years and that that would end – in August of 2019. So remember, this is January right now. So they, he's kind of decided in between. He's not commuting her right away. He's not giving her 25. But he is going to make her finish up 15 years of time served. Literally, I'm getting
1: goosebumps right now.
0: I know. <laughs> At that point, or you know, from now on, she's going to be moved to the transition group for the remaining seven months of her sentence. So she's not going to be in just general population anymore. Sure. Yep. After she's released... She will be on probation for 10 years. And they say that when they met with Centoya and told her that she hugged them and was dancing. Oh, I would be too. Same. I was just like, oh my God. I'm, I have goosebumps right she now. She got her life back. She got her life back. She got her free life back. And she's not too old to enjoy it. Exactly. She's still young. She's yeah. 30. Yep. Yeah. They also allowed like a speaker phone phone call where yes. Cintoya calls into this, like, I don't know, it's like a boardroom. Yeah. And there's a ton of people in there. Everybody who has been supporting her. All of her supporters. Her moms in there, all of her attorneys, all of her psychiatrists. Yeah. Yeah. They're a- all there. Everyone working for her and yeah. trying to get her clemency and to get her released. Yeah. And she's just saying how thankful she is to everybody for their help. It was Awesome. Mm -hmm. I could just see her mom was like I mean, Ellenette was just (sighs) relieved. So relieved and happy. Yes. The last thing we see is on-screen text saying Cintoya Brown Long, which makes me believe she got married, but they don't actually say anything. Mm -hmm. So it says Cintoya Brown Long earned two college degrees from Lipscomb University and wrote her memoir, Free Cintoya, while incarcerated. On August 7th of 2019, after serving 15 years in prison, Centoya walked out as a free woman. She serves as an advocate on behalf of trafficking victims and social justice reform. And then they show pictures of her walking out free. And I'm like, she just looks gorgeous and happy. And
1: it was awesome. Like, this is what a great way to end a story. Such a comeback story. Oh my gosh, I love it. It was so good. Usually we're pissed and upset at the end of our, at the end of these, and yeah. this is actually something to
0: be happy about, you know. Yeah. And I think the weird thing about it too is that this wasn't like an innocence project situation. Exactly, she wasn't totally in different. prison falsely. She was there for a good reason, right? But. They just weren't taking all of the facts into account.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, like we had mentioned at the beginning, this is not your typical true crime story. Right. I mean, like you just stated, while she was never innocent, I think we can all agree that justice was definitely served in this case. Yeah. I think we can also agree that while our judicial system is flawed, Santoya's case is a shining example of how a change in
0: the law can right a wrong. Oh, so awesome. It's so, so true. It's nice to see that the laws can change with the times. Yes. I love that so much.
1: Yeah, And we really see that nowadays. And I think it's with all of social media, technology, big so many things are changing in our world so quickly. Because our world is no longer so big. It's yes. very small. Yes. And we're seeing that. Absolutely. We hope you like today's episode. As always, send in your requests for future episodes. You can actually email us You can now email <laughs> us. At requests at sharecrimepodcast.com. We have a dot com. Yes, we have a dot com. So send them in. Send them in. <laughs> Next week, we'll be covering the truly bizarre Hulu documentary, There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane. Ooh. So you will definitely need to tune in next week.
0: Yeah, it's a good one, you guys.
1: It really is. Find us in our Facebook group, Share Crime Podcast Discussion Group. We're having a lot of fun. We're getting more people we involved are. in our group, and we it's getting are. more fun.
0: The interaction is amazing.
1: Yes, I love it. I love it. You guys are awesome. We're so excited and we're having so much fun doing this. Now, follow us on our personal pages as always. I am at M M I L L A R D 08. So that's M Millard 08. And Amy is at A M E underscore S O W A D A, Amy underscore Sawada. If you could also please take one minute to rate and review us on iTunes, it would really, really help our ratings, really help bump our podcast up and let other listeners find us. If you could even just do a two or three word. Review, yeah, that like, would even help us more. Totally far. fucking awesome. Yes, I'm okay with reviews <laughs> like that, you guys. Just a couple words, or even one quick sentence, that helps us even more yeah. with actual written reviews. We so know it's annoying, that. and you hear it from everybody. Yes. But Come two on. seconds, we're awesome. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. It'll take yeah, but if you could do it, that would be great. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, don't forget: never run with scissors.
0: Bye, guys. Bye.